What we could do, though, is instead of Reagan's, uh, you know, fear mongering that the, the most thing that, you know, you should be scared of the phrase, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. Uh, actually, you know, it could be, I'm here from the government and I'm here to, um, you know, cancel your debt, get you high, make you see God and, you know, show you how to collectively bargain. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, uh, you know, I could see that on you a know? sticker like Bernie 2020. He'll make you see God. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure to to welcome David Dayan to this show for the first time. Dave is the executive editor of the American Prospect, longtime sort of, uh, you know, blogger and roused about um, in this sort of online journalism scene. And uh, he's going to talk to us about uh, a very interesting um, recent episode of the uh, not episode issue <laughs> of the. Uh, <laughs> this American would be Prospect. the episode. This is the first yes, episode of, of the issue. Yeah. But welcome, welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having me, guys. So um, I thought a good a good place to start is is with your sort of introduction to the package, and this actually ties in with a little bit of of, of, of good old online drama. That happened today, um, which is like the Green Lantern theory of the presidency, uh, which was a big thing, you know, maybe like four or five years ago um, when the sort of Obama apologist land. So can you explain to us what that was all about? Well, I, I hate to inform your readers that we're going to have to go back in time and, and discuss these <laughs> things. But uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, I I certainly, along with probably you and and others, uh, had some some critical things to think about uh, the Obama presidency, its inadequacies, its uh, inability to uh, change narratives around austerity, uh, its its inability to um, you know understand the forces that it was fighting against in the Republican Party, its willingness to offer up things like cuts to Social Security. Uh, it's continuation of uh, our sort of imperial foreign policy. And nearest to my heart, it's complete botching of the foreclosure crisis and creating a situation where we had 10 million families lose uh, uh, their homes uh, after the financial crisis. So uh, there, there did become this breed of uh, Obama fan, Obama defender, that brought up this thing called the Green Lantern Theory of the Presidency that they made up. Uh, and, and the idea is that Green Lantern, uh, as we know, is a superhero who has a ring. And the ring is really only bound by his own will in terms of what he is able to conjure up. And their idea is that uh, people think of the presidency in this way, that they're only bound by their own will, when in fact there are many checks and balances, whether you're talking about Congress or the courts or public opinion or what have you. And people shouldn't uh, just assume that whatever Obama might have wanted to get, that he could automatically get it. Uh, so that was, that was sort of that theory uh, and, and that theory really wrote a, a, a whole bunch of things out of the story. Uh, the biggest, in my view, being, being the fact that the foreclosure money was already appropriated, uh, uh, $75 billion worth that could have been done to mitigate uh, the, the evictions of people from their homes and, and really wasn't. Uh, but in, in the context of this package that we decided to, to put together, uh, you know, that what it leaves out of the story is the fact that we've been passing laws for 230 odd years in this country, and they have been odd. Uh, and uh, there are tons of statutory pieces of authority that really have not been employed to any kind of full potential. And a progressive president or any any Democratic president could simply take up these ideas and use the administrative state to make real progress without having to rely on passing new laws from Congress, without having to rely on Mitch McConnell or, God forbid, you know, Joe Manchin uh, and, and, and Kirsten Sinema. 
uh, if if uh, you know Democrats are, are fortunate enough to to win back the Senate. Uh, you know, there doesn't have to be this despair that this idea that that oh, we'll just anything that that good that could be done can be blocked. There's real authority already granted to the executive, and, and that's why we call the package you know using presidential power for good. I mean, we see uh, plenty of instances of of using presidential power. You know, for evil, and 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 uh, we're yeah. we're seeing it right now with uh, you know William Barr's very extreme theories of unitary executive power. Uh, we have a piece actually in the same issue uh, by former Representative Brad Miller about all of these things that that the Trump administration is doing to aggrandize executive power based on a really radical reading of the Constitution. But this is just presidents doing the job that they're supposed to be doing, take care that the laws are faithfully executed. There are laws that have been passed that granted this authority, and we we just thought it was important to spell them out. Yeah, yeah. And so when, right, I mean, this, when Dan Pfeiffer, you know, is, <laughs> is, is yelling at Farhad Manju that, like, you don't understand... You you know we we were totally hemmed in. We couldn't do anything more. I mean, the clearest counter example of that, as you say, is the money that they had appropriated to, to save uh, underwater homeowners and didn't. And they probably could have gotten more money than that. You know, a slush fund, basically. Yeah. And they chose to help the banks instead. But now, on the other hand, we're seeing Trump just push the boundaries of of power in in every conceivable way. You know, it's like we're going to stack the entire judiciary. With these, you know, thirty-year-old interns that have been decanted from the Heritage Foundation cloning <laughs> tanks, um, and we're not gonna, we're not gonna uh, vet everyone for eight months, and you know, if they ever, you know, like like farted in church once, like that's it. Sorry, buddy. Um, there's there's a lot of things you can do. Absolutely, um, and and we're also seeing Trump, you know, take that authority. Uh, both in in terms of foreign policy and trade and, and immigration, where where there are some constitutional ways in which uh, the president does have a certain amount of power. But what's so interesting to me and what I mentioned in my sort of open of this uh, using presidential power for good peace is that Trump's also using a bunch of statutes that have been granted uh, to the executive uh, to, to, to work their will. Uh, uh, you know, all of these tariffs are based on this thing called the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. And he's using a section of that to put forward these tariffs when when Congress is supposed to have a role. But they gave that up to the to the president. The The farm bailout that's being done uh, is one of the most interesting things, because it's actually a New Deal era law called the Commodity Credit Corporation. And and he is using that to offset the, the bad effects of his own tariffs to just funnel billions of dollars into uh, the hands of farmers, much of which goes to agribusiness, by the way. Um, but of course, here's a, here's Donald Trump using a New Deal program to just throw money at a problem. And would Barack Obama have <laughs> ever done that? Of course not. Uh, but those authorities are available to a creative president that sees his, uh, you know, the office as a way to get things done regardless by any means necessary, rather than uh, immediately thinking they're hemmed in by 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 whatever you know forces are out there. So this is really interesting to me because what this is doing is it's it's countering the notion that Obama and other centrists are the pragmatic ones who actually know how change works or doesn't work. And they're they're the ones that simply understand the inner workings. And, you know, if not for um, the way that politics actually has to happen, they might push forward these really progressive plans. And therefore, it really makes no difference how leftist your candidate is because they're going to run into the same obstacles. And really what matters is that the ability to open Mitch McConnell's mind to compromise or something, right? <laughs> Right. Um, as if that's that's what we all need to figure out, the psychology of Mitch McConnell's mind. And once we unlock that, we can really, you know. 
Uh, which is what, what you're saying is no, 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 much more important than that is the will to use what, I mean, some of it is having the kind of, uh, curiosity and creativity as, as you write to discover these old statutes or these, these ways in which, um, less cowardly Congresses, uh, that actually did legislate, right? Empower the executive now, or the ways that cowardly Congresses maybe delegated or deferred responsibility for areas That's right. um, to the executive that can be taken advantage <laughs> of. So the, so the, the knowledge and creativity to look for that and then the will to do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, anyone who thinks and who's going to go back to that tired rubric that, oh, presidents don't really have that much power. It's, it's, it's really, you know, they're, they're, they're hemmed in, they're checked by, by, by all of these other forces. They're not watching the Donald Trump presidency, number one, I mean, quite obviously. And they're, right, right. they just have a poverty of imagination about the capabilities of the office. I mean, the U.S. government is the largest or maybe one of the largest purchasers in the world of goods and services, that alone allows you to set standards for federal contractors who are increasingly practically every business in the economy. So uh, that's that's just off the top. The government has giant tracts of public land, which it can do with uh, uh, pretty much as it, it, it wants within reason. Uh, there, there, there are entire issue areas where, where the, the president has, has either because of deference, uh, from the legislative branch or specific statute or, or constitutional reading, uh, has, has massive authority. The president gets to choose members of the federal reserve, which, which kind of can remake, uh, economic policy, uh, at the, uh, at, at their whim. And, uh, and there are all these regulatory decisions that are based on statute that are available. And, and you know, I, I, I really wrote this and I came up with this idea that I really wanted to put this together. Uh, but at, when I was interviewing to become the executive editor of The Prospect like nine, ten months ago, uh, because I just felt this was such a gap in people's thinking about the presidency and people's thinking mm-hmm. about progressive change that it, it I'm, I'm just shocked that I was able to do it, that, that no other part of the media has really even considered these options before. Uh, and we can go through some of the things that we found out with subject matter experts yeah. and reporters. Uh, but but it, was, it, it was just stunning to me that this was just an available, you know, uh, special report that we were able to do. Uh, uh, but I think it's just incredibly vital to, to show that that we there there is some agency here and who we choose as president really does is going to matter uh, because that all of these options are available to them. It's really remarkable and we will dive in more depth to a few of these key areas. But, um, you know, you put together this package, which I think everyone should really dive in depth to of 30 different executive actions that would be very, very meaningful and radically affect people's lives. Uh, so, so we'll get into a few of those and, and how they work, but just the idea that there's that many ways that you could act, uh, with legitimate, right? So it's again, it's not usurping the, the executive power, but properly using executive power, uh, without needing even the, the Congress or the Senate, right? And, and it's just, it's remarkable how much this isn't being talked about. Absolutely. And 30 is really scratching the surface. I mean, 30 are just the ones that we, document in in these yeah, yeah. 11 articles i mean there the the possibilities really are kind of endless uh the more you mm-hmm. think about it and uh you know we we just thought it was uh, uh incredibly uh critical to uh make this known and one thing that we did is we sent a questionnaire to every presidential candidate with these 30 items trying to get them to commit uh, to say, what are you going to do this while in office? And, and we really did that for two reasons. One, we wanted to put next to every article a little sidebar that says, here's who said what about what th- this particular uh, uh, area of policy and what they were, would, were willing to commit to. Uh, but we also sent it because we wanted the presidential candidates to know, <laughs> not, not just... <laughs> not to educate them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not just... <laughs> Not just that these are areas available to them, but that we're watching. 
like that we know it too. Yes, right. Like we're we're right, aware right. of your authority here, and and if if you are fortunate enough to become president, and six months in, your version of Dan Pfeiffer is trying to mansplain to progressives that uh, well, you know uh, you don't understand the presidency, you don't know uh, how how constrained we are. We can pull this out and say, actually, you kind of promised to do this, and and we know that you ha- don't have to rely on Mitch McConnell, and 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 what's up? So uh, uh, that was kind of the thinking behind that. And before we dive into the to the the subject areas, just very briefly, I think a broader point that you could get to with the specifics is the point you raised that Congress actually might jump into action; they might otherwise not jump into when the executive acts without them. They actually don't like to be usurped in that way. Right? Absolutely. So, I mean, you think about, let's, let's just take one of the, the, the 10 stories that we wrote. Uh, 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 let's say prescription drugs. Uh, there's this statute. Uh, there, there are actually two separate statutes. One is called March in Rights. Uh, it's under something called the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, which says that any drug that that was uh, devised through public funding, public research, uh, if it's not delivered and distributed to the public under, quote, reasonable terms, that the federal government can seize the patent and give it to uh, generic competitors that would uh, deliver it at an affordable price. Uh, there's another even more, ex- uh, uh, more, more useful version of that called eminent domain for patents. And that's under section 1498 of the U S code. And that says that it doesn't matter if it's publicly or privately, uh, delivered, uh, any drug that is a public health, uh, uh, emergency, uh, and, and access, I would argue is a public health emergency, uh, would be able to be seized in this fashion through with just compensation to the, the, the person who you're taking the patent from uh, and delivered so that people have uh, lower drug prices. So let's say a progressive president actually did one of those things. They, they actually started to say, we're going to seize these patents if you're not going to lower the prices on them. Don't you think that Congress will 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 take that as a cue? Whoa, we better do something very meaningful about drug prices, or or or, or this president obviously is is willing to do it unilaterally. Let's at least get our foot in the door and 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 put our stamp on it. Uh, you see that uh, uh, in 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 various times throughout our history when presidents you know say that they're going to take this 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 aggressive action that Congress comes back and says, okay, well, let's negotiate. So uh, I do think that there are going to be opportunities if presidents have the sufficient uh, uh, desire to take executive action that uh, Congress can can react to that. Yeah. Um, and I maybe just to get <clears throat> get into another one of these, these details here, um, I think the, the neatest example in this package uh, is the student loan thing because i mean you can you can explain it to us but one thing i think a lot of people don't know about student loans is that almost all of them are are owned by the federal government now yes and there's a very simple way that you could just basically get rid of almost all the student loan debt in the country right, right? yes absolutely so uh yes in 2010 uh, uh obama through through the health care law actually passed this thing that took out the middleman from the student loan situation before it was privately bank, private banks issuing the loans and uh, the government backstopping that with a guarantee. Uh, and they, they essentially threw the private banks out of the equation and just said, well, let's have the government directly issue the loans. And as a result, about $1.5 trillion out of the $1.6 trillion in outstanding student debt is issued directly by the public. And there happens to be this uh, statute called uh, Compromise and Settlement Authority, which initially was put into place in 1958 and uh, upgraded with the Higher Education Act of 1965, which essentially is a version of, of uh, almost it works almost like prosecutorial discretion. If the uh, Secretary of Education decides that they don't want to collect uh, on, on, on various student debt, they don't have to. They can just decide not to. And uh, they can even, you know, release the claim entirely and send everyone who has student debt that's 
publicly owned uh, a release that says you're out of it. Uh, And so all student debt can be canceled, or virtually all student debt can be canceled by executive authority uh, just through the education department. And now if that's not a powerful spur to change something about the, (laughs) the higher education finance system, I don't know what is. Amazing. It's 1.5 trillion out of the 1.6 trillion debt uh, student debt in this country that could be canceled that way. That's correct. That's correct. Amazing. I just love that. It's just you know, it's like the the you know the gun or whatever that's just been sitting in the middle of the floor uh, in plain sight, and nobody's been like, "Oh, hey, is that a gun?" You know, like, we're kind just, of putting it in plain sight. I feel like it's the gun that's been buried in some yeah. chest somewhere, you know, yeah, under yeah. old yearbooks and blankets and stuff. <laughs> and we're just pulling it out and saying, "Hey, guys, you have a gun here." That we, <laughs> Chekhov is coming in saying, "Guys, it's got to be in plain sight first, and then people know to use it." <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, the the. This, the second one I wanted to bring up, just, just to run through a couple of examples, I mean, there's too many to go through in detail here, but, but I think, you know, climate change is, you know, as everyone sort of admits now, like, this is the problem that, that, that we got to deal with. And yet there are, there, there's a tremendous amount, you know, whether, whether you, uh, uh, if you don't need to pass a single law that the, that the president can do to, to, tackle this sucker. Right. I mean, uh, Obama reluctantly sort of came around to this at the end of his presidency uh, after the failed cap and trade uh, debacle. He, he put forward this thing called the Clean Power Plan, which was an EPA regulation uh, based on the Clean Air Act. Uh, and it was actually uh, has already been sort of blessed by the Supreme Court. There was a ruling called Massachusetts versus EPA that said, Greenhouse gas emissions are something that need to be regulated under the Clean Air Act. And actually, during the Bush administration, uh, uh, demanded that, uh, that, that the executive branch take care of that. Uh, so Obama did it. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, because of the, the advance of renewables, because of, of, of changes in the, the, the power sector, uh, we're already sort of on a trajectory to reduce emissions in, at power plants similar to or even a little bit better than what the clean power plan laid out. And so what that means is that the next president can come in and come up with something that's far more aggressive on that front. Uh, and in addition to just power plants, they can look at other very harmful greenhouse gases, uh, particularly methane. Uh, which uh, is only responsible for about 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions, but at least a quarter of all global warming. It's just a very dangerous greenhouse gas emission. Uh, uh, We can, can, you know, uh, look into leaks, uh, particularly around fracking uh, and other oil and gas extraction for methane. Uh, and, and there are other, uh, plenty of other uh, regulations that can be done, and also the management of public land. Uh, and this is actually where most candidates have vowed to uh, uh, basically block all uh, new permits and new leases on public lands for oil and gas production and all fossil fuel production, which it would be a really radical departure from where Barack Obama was, where, you know, there's that famous speech, I think it was at Rice University or something, where Obama says, hey, I was the number one oil and gas producer in the, in, in, uh, of all presidents, so why don't you thank me? Uh, I don't know if you remember that, yeah. uh, seeing that little no, bit. Yeah. But this, now the consensus within the, the Democratic Party leadership and those who would be president is, no, we have to actually ban all oil and gas drilling on public lands. And so that alone uh, would, would keep it in the ground and, and, and make a significant impact. Yeah, um, I got, I remember uh, during the debates, I think, in 2012, Obama boasting that he that that under his watch we had built enough oil and gas pipelines to wrap around the planet like twenty five thousand miles worth. Um, I remember Romney it, chastising him for saying you actually lowered production uh, on public lands, and and Obama very defiantly saying that's not true. We 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 increased it. Yeah. 
Yeah, we blasted it through the roof. And 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 in fact, I mean, I think this is what as like 2015, 2016, the US is the was the biggest producer of fossil fuels in the world, even passing up Russia and Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, uh, I know that oil production on on public lands was uh, up 60% at the end of Obama's term that it was at the end of George W. Bush's term. So, so reversing that uh, would would really go uh, pretty far, and and combined with you know uh, clamping down on leakage and 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 these other harmful greenhouse gases, a new clean power plan, uh, getting back into uh, the diplomatic community in terms of rejoining uh, the Paris Agreement and trying to strengthen it. Uh, there's a, a whole lot on the table there, uh, and of course, uh, what we just saw this week with uh, Trump taking, trying to take California out of uh, uh, their waiver under the Clean Air Act to set their own tailpipe emissions for transportation. Obviously, you could reverse that in, a, in, a, in, in one second and uh, uh, get us back on a path where you have transportation emissions going down significantly. Yeah. Um that is pretty remarkable that 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 to use the Clean Air Act to stop California from being so clean. It's like your, your, air, your air is too damn clean, California. <laughs> Talk about creativity. <laughs> um, the 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 last example I wanted to bring up and. and um, uh, but, you know, we could talk about some more of them, but but is the anti-monopoly stuff. So I, f- I feel like this is a sort of, you know, really budding locus of discussion uh, on on the, you know, the sort of broad left, uh, so to speak. You know, Matt Stoller just had a book that came out uh, about, you know, anti-monopoly. And, um, you know, there's a real rich tradition here uh, and uh, decades of legislation, you know, going back well over 100 years. Right. And and granting uh, really spectacular authority over, um, you know, the affairs of corporations to, to, to say, you know, yep, you got to bust yourself up. You, you can't be doing this thing because it's anti-competitive. Um, Absolutely. What could the next president do? Yeah. So, I mean, we were fortunate enough to get Sandeep Vahisen, who uh, works with Matt Stoller at the Open Markets Institute. Uh, and he had to sort of cut down what <laughs> the, the, the level of authorities uh, to, that he wanted to talk about. He had to focus on just a few. But one of the biggest, uh, or I'd say two of the biggest, are uh, first, uh, the Federal Trade Commission. Um, the Federal Trade Commission is given very specific rulemaking authority. And this is through the Federal Trade Act, which was passed under Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and it was done very specifically to make uh, some body, uh, legislative or, or executive body out there, that is not constrained by the courts. It would recapture sort of the, the authority that the courts had commandeered to themselves during the progressive era uh, to sort of rein in what the Sherman Act and the Clayton Antitrust Act actually said. And so the FTC, under Section 5 of that, that Federal Trade Act, has rulemaking authority, and it can be very aggressive in using this rulemaking. Now, it hasn't for a number of years. It hasn't really made rules at all, uh, but you could uh, uh, do all kinds of things that prohibit, uh, for example, exclusive dealing, which is where a company says that uh, uh, they can, uh, you know, a, uh, a buyer of theirs or a partner of theirs in some way can only use them and not uh, uh, any kind of competitor or rival. Uh, and if they do, then they'll be dropped from the large company uh, who they're doing business with. So that's an example. Uh, uh, and, and then, you know, plenty of other predatory practices like uh, these non-compete clauses that we see out there where these are these employment contracts that say that individuals can't take a job with uh, another company that's of similar uh, uh, type we see this in the fast food industry, believe it or not, where uh, fast food workers have to sign a contract like you're working for Jimmy John's and you can't send our trade secrets over to Wendy's. You know that, that you're not allowed to do that. And this is clearly designed for wage suppression 
so that people are locked into one company and therefore don't have the freedom of movement to sell their labor uh, wherever they want. So uh, these are just a couple examples of this rulemaking authority, which is really, really powerful. Uh, and, and then the second thing is just the guidelines by which uh, uh, comp- uh, 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 the Justice Department and the FTC under the Sherman Act look at mergers. Uh, right now, it's a very, uh, uh, very loose standard uh, that, that, uh, under, that, that essentially allows a lot of mergers to go through. But they could issue new guidelines that would be more in line with what Congress really intended uh, and, and, and maybe even uh, per se kind of market share thresholds where if you are trying to acquire uh, uh, another business that would give you over X percentage of a particular market, then we're going to say that's presumptively illegal, that that's anti-competitive and, and you're going to have to prove your position in court rather than uh, the other way around. So uh, those were two, but uh, there are actually many more things that in, in Sandeep's piece, uh, so I urge you to read it. Yeah, that, I mean, that was the kind of thing where, where when I first started looking into this, like back in the Obama years, you know, you look at the statutory authority of the FTC and, you know, a lot of these other regu- regulatory agencies, I mean, I mean uh, you know, Wall Street ones too, SEC, CFTC, they they've got just incredible power, um, and they've just been sort of slowly neutered over the years to become these sort of just these sclerotic hulks. One thing uh, in our they, banking piece that uh, Graham Steele, uh, who uh, he's at Stanford now, but he used to work for Sherrod Brown. One thing that he said that really struck me is he said that you know after the financial crisis, there were people on the Hill debating whether you needed to pass something like Dodd Frank. Because there's so much authority within the regulators already that they could change the, the, the system of Wall Street in any way they wanted to without needing new law. Uh, so, you know, and which means there's there's a charitable and an uncharitable interpretation of why then like why have we not been talking about this? Why is this not something right there? There's obviously the explanation that, well, there's just ignorance. Uh, of course, the less charitable interpretation is they like to be able to say that there's nothing they can do and they're hemmed in. And actually, because of maybe they're beholden you know, to the donor class or because of their actual beliefs about what should or shouldn't happen, they don't want to do certain things. And so I, I've been reading these you know, 30 different things that just scratch the surface of what can be done. And of course, as a leftist, I'm on board with everything. And I'm like, <laughs> awesome. Let's do it and more. Let's do it. And then I'm wondering, wait, how many of the actual candidates running really want all these things to be done? Right. 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 And, and how much are they pretending um, and using excuses uh, when actually the problem is they don't really have the desire to do the things necessary to get these things done. I mean, that's why we wanted to pin them down. Uh, that's right, right. that's why we sent out these questionnaires. And and I can tell you that the questionnaires from Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders were almost unilaterally yes, uh, with a few exceptions, right. which we do get into uh, in the package. Um, what I would say is I, I would, you know, you, you put up two sort of a binary. Is it about uh, uh, ignorance or about uh, a studied indifference to wanting to do this? And I, I really do think it's the latter. Uh, if you look at our, our, right. our previous presence on the Democratic side, they, they you know, they, they didn't want to be pushed in this direction. Obama very explicitly uh, on things like DACA. Uh, said for years, no, I actually don't have the authority to do that. And the activist said, actually, yes, you do. And they showed him where (laughs) and they showed him how. And, uh, you know, finally, he came around. Interestingly, in the student debt, we get into this story where uh, when the for-profit colleges were blowing up uh, around the end of the uh, second term of Obama, uh, two lawyers from the National Consumer Law Center wrote a letter to the education department saying, hey, you have this thing called compromise and settlement authority and you can actually just cancel <laughs> these on your own. And, you know, Obama, they didn't do it. They, they, they said that was a bridge too far. They, they, and, you know, a lot of people from that education department now work 
in the for-profit college sector. So uh, right. figure figure right. that one out. So I really do charitable think- Charitable interpretations are not looking good. I'm yeah. trying to think of like, so let's, let's just try to be the most charitable as possible. Is there a way that, because it looks like even Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have yet to commit on a few things. Is there some notion that I believe in this, but if I- advocate it now before I'm president, then that'll uh, be worse for my possibility of being elected. Maybe I'll do it when I'm when I'm in office or applying that same logic in office. If I do some of these things, that will have a deleterious effect on other important um, legislation or actions that'll have a blowback that that, you know, is there some pragmatic argument uh, that perhaps some of these candidates are, are, are making? Uh, and maybe that will get to our later discussion about how some of these things can be undone. Um, you know, in various ways. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure if you find 10 political consultants, you'd get nine and a half telling you exactly <laughs> what you put out. Uh, that, you know, we got to move slow and you got to bring the public along and whatever. Uh, the, the, we, can't, we can't say this out loud and blah, blah, blah. You know, my, <laughs> my position is that I'm, as, as a journalist, I, I feel like it's crucial to inform the public about where the candidates stand on these issues and what is actually possible, because ultimately that's where you'll have democratic accountability. The, the, the problem of the last decade plus of governance and why I think we've seen wild swings in the electorate uh, with 2006 and 2008, a wave to the Democrats in 2010 and 2014, a wave to the Republicans, and in 2018, a wave back to the Democrats, is that no, nobody uh, is, is able under the you know, very constrained current system to get anything meaningful done and tangible done for the American people. And they point to the other side as the reason why. And because right. we're not in this sort of parliamentary system where whatever, you know, the public votes for that party that gets into power is able to pretty much unilaterally, although, you know, Brexit <laughs> confuses this somewhat, uh, pretty much unilaterally is able to uh, uh, work their will. And then we as a, a, a voting population get to decide whether we thought that was a good idea or not. We don't have that in America, but we could uh, in, in, in some ways yeah. if uh, there was a president willing to go this extra mile and, and, and take these steps. And so I think from my perspective as, as a journalist, uh, I don't have to care about the political consultant aspect of this. I, I have to care about uh, people ought to know that these options are out there. Uh, pre presidential candidates ought to know that we know and uh, they ought to be uh, thinking about these things as they uh, move forward in their campaigns. And they should be forced to take a stand and persuade. So, I mean, one method of being a state or, you know, one way of being a statesman, right, is to take a stand in principle. And I mean, first of all, a lot of these things are already very popular. So, so like the idea that many of these things wouldn't be popular is just nonsense. Um, you know, there's probably broad support for, for very many of these 30 uh, executive power uh, actions that you're talking about. But beyond that, the role of a good statesman is to tell the public why something is good for the common good and for the people that uh, the person's representing. Right. And so like, you're, as a journalist, in a way, forcing the issue so that things that are available are indeed in the public sphere up for debate, and our leaders can show their character, their values, and their their vision of how to achieve what's good for us, um, rather than hide. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, look at the situation around student debt. I mean, Sanders and Warren have already proposed very substantial student debt cancellation. And all that we're saying is that, OK, you've proposed it. Uh, I don't know if Mitch McConnell is going to agree with you, but all you need is an education secretary whom you appoint to agree with you to get this done. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, I mean, Sanders kind of said if Congress refuses to act, they will act. They will explore other avenues. Uh, uh, Warren said she was still looking into the legal authority around it. Uh, so I feel like at least at, if nothing else, we sparked a conversation about it within those campaigns. Right. Uh, and they now have to think about this because it's going to be out there. So this this raises a, 
a, a kind of what you might call a cultural question, I suppose, um, which is that, you know, you're talking about really bending these these agencies um, in it. In in many cases, like very considerable degree to to like like just shaking them out, you know, like like not just shaking the rust off, like beating the rust off, with like a, <laughs> right, like a hammer, you know, and the barnacles a wire are, brush. are flying here, yeah, and yeah, and 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 I think that would be my suspicion, and uh, I think this is probably correct is that that is going to be hard you know i think that that the, that the institutions are going to resist you um but i also think it's probably not impossible to to, to be you know to kind of uh uh inspire a new esprit de corps in these like i remember when they first set up the cfpb and it was like full of crusaders and they were like we're gonna get these fucking hey, credit Ryan, card can companies. you tell us can you tell our can you tell our audience what that stands for Oh yes, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right? And this was a new agency that that was Elizabeth Warren's baby, and uh, was set, was included in Dodd Frank, right? And so it's all about protecting consumers from from fraud and and like illegal fees and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, been largely neutered in the Trump era, but when they first set it up, it really it it had a vigor that most of the other financial regulators did not have at all, um, and so. You know, how do you instill that, you know, give them the steroid injection to be like, ah, I'm, you know, I'm hulking out over here on these banks? <laughs> well, I, I think I can answer that with three words. Personnel is policy. So uh, yeah. what, what the career bureaucrats think about some of these ideas is uh, offset in a way by what the leadership the political leadership that's appointed into these agencies to run these agencies can do. And we've seen this in the Trump era, right? I mean, you know, they they hired Scott Pruitt and 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 Andrew Wheeler, a coal lobbyists or an energy lobbyist at least, uh, to run the EPA. And whatever direction the EPA was going in previously, it came to a complete standstill because the leadership wanted to go uh, in a certain direction. So uh, uh, who is appointed into head these agencies matters and the creativity of the top leadership and the willingness to, to really get something done for the public really matters is what I would say. And just to touch on CFPB, I mean, there are a few things in here that CFPB has has a role over and, and you know, those those vigorous activists or, or maybe not activists, but those the, 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 the career officers, the people within CFPB who want to trot out these ideas, uh, they have the opportunity to do so. There's there's one in particular I'll bring up uh, the, the, the credit bureaus, you know, the Equifax and TransUnion and Experian, these companies that uh, we're, we're the we're the we're not the customers we're we're the profit centers for. Uh, uh, where yeah. they sell our information to uh, these banks and things, you can create under existing authority, according to, to our package, according to Graham Steele, a public credit registry uh, that uh, the CFPB would then be the cr credit reporting agency and it would furnish this information to uh, various lenders who want to check you for credit. They would be barred under the 1974 Privacy Act from selling that information to data brokers or uh, profiting off that information in any way. Uh, it can be done with uh, certainly, uh, I mean, I guess the question would be, oh, we can't give up the, this, this kind of security to the government. Well, you know, I don't think Equifax <laughs> is doing such a great job with it. So um, right. certainly a level of security better than uh, one that releases 154 million pieces of information uh, out to, to, to hackers. Uh, so, you know, uh, hopefully there are certain, you know, people in these agencies that have been thinking about these ideas and ideas that we haven't even come up with. For a long time and and see, you know, an activist government, a, a government that's willing to push these boundaries as an opportunity to finally uh, uh, get these things done. I think there's an important thing tying into your, your point that people don't necessarily trust the government there uh, and threading the needle between just like being really good technocratically and having a great bureaucracy 
And the feeling that people have, which is that the government doesn't do anything for them. It's because they don't know what the hell the government does because it's so like mystified and complex and they have no idea all the things that are being done for all the people all the time because it's really, I mean, you could say it's a political communication issue, but when it's something simple and straightforward, like single payer healthcare, everybody gets it. They're like, oh, this is a huge, massive benefit from my taxation that's going into this public good and this thing that I directly see the connection to the government with, right? But there's so many things that that's not the case for. And so what's both the the possibility and the danger with all of this? Like, I think one of the uh, possibilities is the more amazing things that are done, the more people will be aware of all the things the government can do for us and have been doing, actually, that they didn't even know about. I mean, I guarantee you, if millions of recent college graduates got a letter in the mail from the right. Department of Education that said, we're releasing your loan, uh, they'll know about it. <laughs> and they'll, they'll, yeah, yeah. they'll, they'll have right? warm isn't feelings. That huge? That's a huge deal. They'll have very warm feelings about that. If uh, we <laughs> set up a postal banking system, which is another one of the stories that we put here, which is uh, available under inherent authorities, give everybody in America a bank account, uh, at the post office, which is ubiquitous in every zip code in America. Uh, oh, yeah. that, that is something that, that, you know, suddenly you have, you have about a quarter of all Americans that have little or no access to the financial system. And, uh, it's flipping that switch and saying, here, here's a, here's a public option. Here's a bank account. Uh, that, that's, that's a huge deal. I mean, considering that, that you pretty much need to enter the financial system to do almost anything these days, whether you're talking about getting a job or renting a car or doing just about anything. Uh, if the government would suddenly uh, give people the freedom and the option to do that without, you know, uh, killing them on fees uh, or requiring a minimum balance, uh, that that is that's enormous. Uh, so I, I think there are opportunities there. Uh, some of this stuff is, you know, writing rules and, and things that might not seem that tangible. Uh, but other things, I think, uh, are very public facing and very powerful. Smoking weed, for example. Well, yes, uh, uh, in fact. Uh, and, and there's a little news in there in that I, I have not seen this before. Uh, uh, both Sanders uh, and Warren and and sort of O'Rourke, although I couldn't really understand uh, what what his answer was, uh, agreed. That's because that, he was high. Yeah, he might have been high. <laughs> uh, they agreed to deschedule marijuana, and let me explain what that means. Marijuana is a controlled substance at the federal level under the Controlled Substances Act. There are schedules of types of drugs based on their danger to the public. And right now, marijuana is a Schedule One drug. Uh, that is the most dangerous that you can get. And it restricts all sorts of things. First of all, it makes it illegal. Uh, it restricts federal funding for uh, studying uh, the effects of marijuana. It restricts, uh, in many cases, banks from doing business with legal marijuana businesses in the states. And so you have this situation where these businesses are paying their taxes by you know rolling up Brinks trucks and bringing out sacks of cash. Uh, it's completely ridiculous. And, and if you, the president uh, and actually the attorney general specifically under existing authority under the Controlled Substances Act can say, I'm changing that schedule and I can either reschedule uh, marijuana as a, a lower level drug or I can deschedule it by delisting it entirely, taking it off of the schedule completely. And what Warren and Sanders have said is that they would deschedule it. And that effectively makes marijuana legal nationwide in anything but name. So it would be legal then federally, uh, or it, would, it certainly would be decriminalized. Uh, uh, you, if, if the drug is descheduled, you can't really cite someone for possession of it, uh, or even sales, I don't think. Uh, and then it would be up to the states. And of course, more than half of the states already have legal medical marijuana and a growing number of states have legalized it for recreational use. So this would be a huge sea change and it can be done by executive authority. And we have two candidates now or, or maybe three who have said they would do it that way. Uh, there are others like Cory Booker, who has put out legislation to try to get 
uh, marijuana descheduled legislatively. Uh, but of course, that's a heavier lift because you have to go through Congress to do that. Uh, it's it's available to the next president. You know, so we talk a lot about pot. That probably matters a lot more in terms of criminal justice. But, um, you know, there's also, you know, the psychedelics, the MDMA um, kind of, Psilocybin. you know, yeah, the, right. Party drugs and, and, and tripping drugs that, that like, oh, very easy to make fun of. But there's a lot of research in the last kind of five to 10 years as, that have demonstrated some pretty spectacular potential, possibly, for, for uh, these type of drugs for treating, you know, PTSD, depression, you know, anxiety and so on. And haven't um, they been legalized in Colorado? Like magic uh, mushrooms, wasn't that legalized in in Denver or in Colorado or something like that? I think in I Denver, so. maybe. But couldn't you apply the same framework? Yes. Uh, is what I'm saying to the you know. I mean, because it's just as ridiculous to say because Schedule One is no, uh, it, it extremely addictive and dangerous, and no medical and no use, use. and yeah, all no of the use. correct. All the psychedelics just do not fit in that category. Right. I mean, you, you, you even have if you just stick them in Schedule Three, or oh, whatever, and, which is and, less restrictive. And, and Ryan, there's a history on the record of investigations and hearings where experts say how wrong that is, and the politicians just don't care. Right. I mean, you have <laughs> you have a schedule. Schedule One includes like LSD, heroin. And marijuana. I mean, it's just it's completely <laughs> ridiculous. And and some of the psychedelics that you're talking about. So, uh, yes, I mean, uh, if, if you want to go further, the, the attorney general, there, there are some steps that need to be taken through the DEA. Uh, the uh, Health and Human Services need to make a scientific and medical recommendation. But, you know, the president would have access to, to appoint the people who would make those recommendations at all those separate agencies. Uh, and and if they're determined to end the war on drugs, uh, we we can end it uh, uh, in in large degree uh, through uh, the 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 use of the scheduling. And work will have to be done, like as you suggest. Like our bureaucrats will have to work their asses off, even with like the student debt. You said you know um, OMB is involved, IRS is involved. Sure. It's gonna it's gonna involve a lot of agencies and a lot of sign offs. Um, but at least that's our government working for a benefit instead of like ICE capturing people and imprisoning them in cages. So it's like a different way to use the government, right? This, this is this is why we called it using presidential power for good. Uh, instead of what, instead of what we normally say. And which, which will then in turn, I mean, what I, what I've hated for many years about the reactionaries is they get into power and they make it a self-fulfilling prophecy that the government is bad for you because they take the government and make it bad for you. And so that's a beautiful thing they're able to do, like to, to like perform, perform the very ideology that they're espousing by, by harming you. Anyway, so like, yeah. What we could do, though, is instead of Reagan's, uh, you know, fear mongering that the, the most thing that, you know, you should be scared of the phrase, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. Uh, actually, you know, it could be, I'm here from the government and I'm here to, um, you know, cancel your debt, get you high, make you see God and, you know, show you how to collectively bargain. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, uh, you know, I could see that on you a know? sticker like Bernie 2020. He'll make you see God. I can I can totally see <laughs> yeah, that. Exactly. Now, I mean, aren't we going to have a more favorable view of leftist ideology after that? Isn't that I mean, hell, Kentucky might go blue. You never know. <laughs> there you have it. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, what what we've seen is conservatives come in and and wreck government. Uh, that that has been their their fundamental ideology. We get into that in one uh, one of the pieces around tax policy, where uh, yeah, I mean our guy uh, Victor Fleischer's with the University of California Irvine. He writes about various loopholes that can be closed and things like that. But then at the end, he says, you know, most important thing we can do is actually start auditing the rich again. <laughs> and yeah. and, and oh, yeah. <laughs> that's where the money is and and that's that's what's been what's been completely lost and and he he lays out some percentages of 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 the percentage of taxpayers uh, at at various incomes and and how the auditing has changed over the years and it's really dramatic i mean it's really stark and uh 
you know, that's a perfect example of, of government just being ruined from within, uh, ruining this, this, this revenue capability. And then, of course, the deficit hawks say, oh, no, we don't have any money. Well, we don't have any money because people are stealing it with impunity uh, and, right. and shirking their obligations. And if we just change that, uh, we, we could have uh, uh, some serious abundance uh, uh, with respect to the federal treasury. So, um, you know, I think that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. And that reminds me about, uh, when we spoke to Emma Catterin about, uh, you know, poor Tiffany Caban should have won that, that race, but about how a DA, uh, that's progressive wouldn't just be, I mean, importantly would be focused on decarceration and really undoing the harms to populations that have been really abused by the way we police and the way that we do mass incarceration. But actually, you know, somewhat counterintuitively to leftists, you could use the DA's office to actually target the rich and powerful who never get targeted by, by right? So like, you could also think that the attorney general uh, of a real leftist might um, suddenly threaten and go after all kinds of, of powerful corporations and people that have been, you know, being aided by the government rather than held to account. Definitely. We have one, one policy in there that talks about uh, this little obscure piece of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which was put together after Enron and all the accounting scandals. And it forces CEOs to sign a piece of paper every year. And this is still in force. They do it every year uh, that says they are in control of the risk management of their company. So the CEO of Equifax signed that the, the year that uh, he, he lost everybody's personal information. He signed wow. that. The CEO of Wells Fargo signed that the year it came out that actually they were making fake accounts uh, by the millions in, in the names of their customers. And there is jail time in the statute for if you sign that uh, and it, it turns out to be not true. And so literally just enforcing that one section of Sarbanes-Oxley would be this massive change in accountability for corporations. Jail the bankers, baby. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the last question I've got for you here, uh, you know, the last section in your, in your package is by uh, Scott Lemieux. I... Um, and and it's about you know the uh, certain court backlash that you're going to get right if you try to do any of this stuff right um, and you know because like Trump's been just stuffing all these vacancies full as we've been saying he's got a conservative majority on the Supreme Court now and so like what is the strategy to to deal with that obstacle. Well, it's definitely, you know, the source of concern, and it would be the source of concern as surely as if you, you, you passed a new law as it is if you tried to use an existing law. Uh, they're, they're, you know, the, the conservative ideology on the courts is sufficiently malleable, I feel, that, uh, you know, if a Democrat does it, it, it might be seen as presumptively illegal in some way yeah. or another. Uh, you know, uh, Scott lays out the different ways in which we're starting to see this bubble up uh, with there was a, a, a Supreme Court ruling just in the past session uh, around something called the non-delegation doctrine. I'm not going to bore everybody by getting into it, but uh, it essentially could uh, have the potential of nullifying some of these administrative changes to the law. Uh, but where he eventually lands is to say that, that, you know, while there should be a lot of concern about this, it shouldn't necessarily mean that you can't do anything. I mean, first of all, you know, it's like the old Simpsons uh, 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 sketch where, where Homer says to Bart, you tried and you failed. The, the, the lesson is never try. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's, that's obviously not what you should be doing. Uh, you, you, should, you should, you know, uh, endeavor to, to make uh, whatever progress you can. Uh, and, and he brings up the fact that even during the New Deal era, when there were judges overturning plenty of rulings, uh, uh, plenty of, of various laws that, uh, the, the, that, that FDR and, and the Progressive Congress passed, uh, still, we saw 
uh, a lot of regulations surviving, in, even in that era, in, in, in the Lochner court. Uh, so, you know, uh, you have to be sort of really buttoned up. Uh, what we've seen under Trump is that there have been a lot of overturning of some of his uh, uh, changes to uh, administrative law, and and that's because they've been they've been messing up a lot. They've, they've they haven't used proper administrative procedure. Uh, they haven't taken certain things into account. They did things in an arbitrary manner. Uh, so you can't do that. You have to you have to you know the the importance of of actually doing these things properly is going to matter a lot. Uh, the 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 attention to detail is going to matter a lot. But uh, you know. Uh, you just have to keep pressing forward and, and, and in the hope that not everything is going to be blocked by the goalie, uh, that, that you'll be able to get some things th- through and that there will be a political cost if, uh, yes. if, if the court ends up uh, blocking things that are very popular, like uh, legalizing pot or uh, canceling student debt. Well, and look, we, we know the sordid details of the backroom dealing between Justice Roberts, right, and Kagan and Ginsburg and all, and all that. And that's, uh, that's going to happen. But the reason it happened is because Roberts was afraid of how it would look if the court looked very partisan. And so he was horse trading in order to, you know, make Obamacare constitutional. And this is to the broader point of, your whole package and this whole issue is to the point that just because legislation doesn't pass doesn't mean things can't get done in important ways. And similarly, the behavior of the court can be pressured to act differently, right? Just because of the, the mood and understanding and pressure of the populace in ways that matter and, and, and can, can reflect, um, you know, in, in decisions that, that like, I mean, it's well, not really ahead, talked yeah. about a lot, but yes, public opinion does matter, and it, it is a function uh, on the court. Now, maybe not for Clarence Thomas, uh, right. but but right. certainly Roberts has shown that uh, uh, that that you know ability to not go ten steps when he can go four. You know, I mean, sometimes he's upheld precedents, but still sort of hollowed them out, like you see the uh, you know in the famous. Uh, healthcare ruling, he he sort of nullified the expansion of Medicaid and allowed states to have an out for that, and that has has caused a lot of suffering uh, in states that have not, you know, taken on yep. the Medicaid expansion. So, you know, I mean, they're 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 almost certain to be missteps along the way, but that cannot be a reason for inaction. That cannot be a reason for for total despair. Uh, uh, you just you just have to try to make it work and. And use public opinion and every other tool at your disposal to try to make these things stick. And you never know. Dick Cheney might shoot Kavanaugh in the face. You never know what might happen. Um, but, but, also, but also in like impeaching Kavanaugh, even if it fails, those are the kinds of political tools that – I mean this whole episode is in a way about the Democrats like having the balls to do all the things they can do and having the popular support to push all the people in the positions of power. So like if you impeach Kavanaugh and it fails – I don't know. I think Kavanaugh might be a little more careful and maybe the court might be a little more careful on the issues that come before it that relate to some of those transgressions or just generally be more aware of what the public thinks of what they're doing. These things don't have to be be so binary, right? I feel like if this was a conservative podcast, we would never have to ask these questions. It would just be assumed. If this was right anchor... Like, 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 of course, that's we, what we do. Of course, we we we've just this this wouldn't even be a discussion. It would just be so. Here's here's what Trump's going to do. You know, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. like here here's obviously the the uh, very extreme actions that he's going to take, and some of them are going to be backed up by actual statute, and some of them are going to be backed up by nonsense and gibberish. But we're going to still do yeah. them, uh, and even if we get hit by some. Uh, even if the you know liberal justices, activist courts out there uh, get rid of some of our ideas, they're not going to get rid of all of them. And that's exactly yeah. what we've seen in the Trump era. So, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 my hope with this package is to get progressives really thinking about the, the, these theories of change. I mean, I hate the word theories of change, the phrase, <laughs> actually, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but one theory is you you go balls out and, and you see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
feet to the fire. I mean, the thing about the thing about the right wing is it, it's it's easy to be evil. It's harder to be good. And you know, the Democrats have people. You know, look, all the right wing policies happen to align with the interests of capital. So so it's like really convenient that like all the reactionary things they want to do coincide right with the donor base. So we have the the opposite problem where some of the donor class have you know countervailing interests to the broader oh, interests of question. the people they represent. Right? Without question, but I mean, I think. Because obviously this will inspire a backlash. These is, you know, even even Obama's relatively inoffensive executive actions, uh, you know, drew calls of him as a tyrant. Uh, but right. I think what you, what we have to be clear on is these are things that were passed by Congress. The, the, the executive is just implementing laws that a an elected Congress duly passed to uh, 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 at, at whatever moment in history that they pass them, and they have not been taken off the books. So this is just a president literally doing the definition in the Constitution of what is to be presumed as his job or her job. Uh, th- th- this, that's where this has to be grounded because, you know, uh, usually... Parties and partisans have a sort of situational relationship to executive power. Like they'll they'll scream about drone strikes when it's uh, uh, the 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 opposite party in the White House, and they won't say anything when it's their party. Uh, but you know, I think what sets this apart is that it's really talking about the fundamental responsibilities of the office, and the responsibilities of the office are to carry out the laws in. A, a good faith manner and and everything in here would do that yeah excellent um i think that's a good place to stop huh uh dave david dane you you got anything else you want to plug before we let you go <laughs> well it's uh prospect.org uh on september 23rd we're gonna start rolling out these things online the issue itself uh, is on newsstands, uh, and and you're welcome, obviously, to subscribe at prospect.org slash subscribe. I should say that uh, in in coinciding with this new package, we're actually putting out a new website uh, that I I, I think uh, people are going to enjoy. It's going to be much easier to read, and, and we'll have a lot more functionality. Uh, so uh, that's about it, prospect.org. Wonderful. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to all of that, and um, we hope you come back on. I, I I don't know if this is outing you, but I feel like there's a book in in, in the offing in the near future. <laughs> you should come back and talk about with us. I would love to do so. That that comes out uh, next June. It's called Monopolized: Life in the Age of Corporate Power, uh, and I would love to uh, come back on and talk about it. Yeah. Oh, and don't miss. We'll link to to your previous book. You know, we were talking about. Um, the the Obama foreclosure disaster and and your book Chain of Title is definitely the best one on that and uh, you know every well, every every patriotic American needs to read this book well in and my not, opinion and well, not David just, it, depending on how how much you enjoyed this maybe you should come back twice yeah, there you go <laughs> not just Americans by the way I literally today just received a copy from my publisher of the Mandarin Chinese version of nice. Chain of Title. Uh, I have no idea why anyone in China would really care about this, but I'm glad that they've translated it. And uh, I have uh, the the one existing copy in the United States of uh, Chain of Title in Mandarin. Fantastic. Well, that, that tells you, you know, every everybody's doing it. Everybody's getting in on the day and train. But thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming on the pod. We'll link to everything. Uh, Dave, Dan, um, nice talking to you. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support. And it helps us keep this going.